You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more. So you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The Biden White House is doing its best not to be involved, talk about, or in any way touch the Justice Department. So yes, we did kill the head of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. But remember, this was less than a year after he said al-Qaeda was done in Afghanistan. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. I don't think there's any question that Russian intelligence got this wrong. Well, I think uh, President Trump and his lawyers are probably uh, fairly nervous. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping are both expected to attend the G20 summit in November. What's President Biden's response? Congresswoman Liz Cheney says former Vice President Mike Pence should testify in front of the January 6th committee. And Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says candidate quality may be an issue for Republicans as they try to win control of the upper chamber. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick sitting in today for Joe Matthew. We're going to talk foreign policy with James Jeffrey, who's been U.S. ambassador to Iraq, Turkey, and Albania. He's now at the Wilson Center. I'm also going to ask Jane Campbell, the president of the U.S. Capitol Historical Society, how 200-year-old slabs of sandstone and marble from the Capitol ended up dumped in a park in D.C. Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shinzano with me to help round out the week on Friday. That is the technical term for today. This could be a little uncomfortable. Chinese President Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin are both expected to come to the G20 summit in November. Uh, not the best friends of President Joe Biden, uh, who was planning to attend and has not uh, officially re- reversed that position. Uh, we'll have a discussion on that later. Uh, here's what uh, Indonesian President Joko Widodo uh, said about this coming summit with Bloomberg News Editor-in-Chief John Micklethwaite. I know that you have invited President Xi Jinping to come to the G20. Has he, has he said he will come here in November? Yeah. Xi Jinping will come. And President Putin. President Putin has also told me he will come. Let's bring in James Jeffrey, former ambassador to Iraq and Turkey, as well as Albania, uh, former special envoy to the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS, chair of the Middle East program at the Wilson Center, exactly the kind of expert in statecraft we've got to hear from uh, now. Uh, Ambassador Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us. Big question is, if she and Putin are going, should President Biden still go? Um, I'll divide the question. Obviously, uh 
being in a meeting of the G20 with Xi uh, is not a problem. Biden is about to have a conversation with Xi. We still maintain uh, relatively um, normal, if not good, relations with China. We're a huge uh, supplier of China still and a huge purchaser of Chinese um, um, products. So obviously that's not a problem. The problem, to be blunt, is Putin. Uh, that creates problems. We had the problems at an earlier G20 meeting at the uh, ministers of foreign affairs level. Uh, Blinken went, but uh, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov of Russia made only a cameo uh, appearance. The good news is that even if Putin shows, it won't mean all that much. The G20 is not all of that relevant. What's critical is where Europe where Japan, where Korea, where Australia, and a few other countries are, and concerning uh, China, where India is, although China is a friend of Russia's. We're still working with all of those countries to maintain this global uh, collective security alliance, and it's holding together pretty well. Uh, I don't think this will be a major blow to it. So why then uh, do you think that the U.S. pushed against uh, President Putin attending, uh, pushed for Russia to be kicked out of the G20? Overall, why did those fail and why is Putin invited if the U.S. didn't want that to happen? That's a great uh, question and uh, you have a sophisticated audience so most of them will not be surprised what I say. There's a difference between what presidents say on foreign policy that they really mean and will put juice and effort and uh, risk and cost into doing and what they say simply uh, to put a spin on things and act like they're doing things. Saying we'll block Putin from an organization that we have absolutely no authority to throw him out of uh, it makes you feel good, but it doesn't do anything. I wish presidents didn't do this. I don't know of one, and I've served for many, who doesn't do it. Uh, you just have to grin and bear it, I guess. So if uh, if President Putin and President Biden attend, uh, Ambassador Jeffrey, you've dealt with Putin. Uh, what should the interactions be like? What would the U.S. Uh, strategy be going into the G20? Ah, that's another and very important question. It is absolutely essential that we work every lever, including Biden personally, to ensure not only that Joe Biden doesn't meet with Putin, that's easy, but that nobody else of importance sits down and gets a photo op with that guy. A few will, like the Indonesians and the hosts. It's very important that we limit the amount of love uh, Putin gets from the G20 because he doesn't deserve love from anybody. So that's a really different thing. Now we've gotten into the realm of real foreign policy. How do we do that, or how does President Biden do that? Are there is there um, backroom uh, horse trading to make sure? Uh, does is there something that other foreign leaders want from the U.S. Uh, in, in those conversations? If President Biden is saying, "Please, please, please, stay away from uh, Putin. Don't legitimize him." Sure. This is what I mean. Again, the administration will get a lot of fluff out on the ear. The talking points that I would write, and I'm pretty sure they're very similar to the ones that will be going out to our embassies to pass on to heads of state of the G20, will be along the following lines. Are you crazy? This guy is a war criminal, and more importantly, he's a loser. He's not making any gains militarily against a state one quarter of his size, but violating the entire international order to do so. He doesn't deserve your time. Furthermore, here are the six things that we've been doing with you or you want from us that are going to go poof if you spend five minutes with this guy in front of a camera. That's uh, not a lot of uh, talking points, just two, but they'll work. 
And as for the message sent to Putin himself, how does all of this play into uh, what seems to be the overall international attempt from the West to show Vladimir Putin that there's nothing to win in this invasion of Ukraine? How pivotal would this G20 uh, summit be in in sending that message? Uh, Again, if Putin only he will get Uh, a meeting with the Indians, because for good reason, the Indians have an existential struggle with China. Their arms merchant is Putin, so they need him. They're also uh, uh, much in debt to uh, Putin's oil deliveries, because India doesn't have much. So check that, check Indonesia, a couple of other third world countries will meet with Putin. The crucial thing is that nobody as part of the American uh, alliance system that's Japan, that's Korea, that's the European states, has anything to do with Putin. That's enough. That's 60% of global GDP. That's most of the military muscle in the world. If they isolate Putin and make it clear that he is not persona grata in these meetings or with them, uh, that'll send the message we need to send. Now, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky was asked to come. He was invited. That was in the news a while back. Uh, would would it stand to reason that he would come to this, or how does uh, the presence of Putin play into that? He absolutely should. It is a distinct honor to invite Zelensky. And what the Indonesians or whoever was behind this is doing is saying, look, we realize this is a very crucial moment in international relations. Russia, too big to ignore, but no real friend has violated all international norms. How do we signal that without burning our bridges to Putin? Answer, we invite Zelensky. Boy, he's going to hate that, Putin. Are there then security concerns? I'm thinking of way back uh, a few years ago when President Putin met with uh, an American, uh, one of the American presidents, I'm blanking, gave him a soccer ball. They had to search the soccer ball for threats. If they're both around each other, Putin and Zelensky, how do do the logistics uh, get managed of security at this? Uh, I've been inside the Secret Service uh, bubble a lot with uh, President Trump and less so with several other presidents. I have no doubt that they will be on their guard about anything from Putin. And secondly, the last thing Putin wants is to try to pull any uh, uh, stunts with uh, President Biden. Is the Russian invasion of Ukraine stepping back a bit? Is the invasion a failure of the G20 and other, uh, I guess, aspects of the international order? What does all of this say about the successes or failures of the G20? That's a second great question. Uh, The G20 is, as I said, a bit of a farce. The G7, which used to be the G8 with Russia, did a lot more real things. The G20 is simply a talk shop. Uh, of all the important countries, but they can't agree on anything. But there is an international order, and it's been functioning more or less since the late 1940s as an answer to World Wars One and Two, and it has survived uh, many things, including the Cold War. It is under direct threat by Putin and Ukraine. It's not just collective security. It's the entire trade system. It's finances. It's everything that makes the world go around and move 60 million Uh, barrels of oil a day all over the world seas. This is crucial. Uh, Putin has challenged it, and therefore we have to stand together, uh, link arms, and make sure that he doesn't gain out of this. With that in mind, briefly, what do you think China has learned from the international response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? That we are much more united 
in America a much more effective leader than China had imagined, and that um, invading even a small country can lead to unanticipated, very, very bad consequences. I think we're all safer today, beginning with the Taiwanese, uh, than before Russia invaded uh, Ukraine. Ambassador Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us. Great insights by Ambassador James Jeffrey, uh, served as ambassador to Iraq, Turkey, Albania, and a, a number of roles, and is at the Wilson Center now. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin both expected to attend the G20 summit in November. Putin, uh, a particularly uncomfortable point for Americans, including President Joe Biden, who's scheduled to attend. James Jeffrey, the former ambassador to Iraq, Turkey and Albania over at the Wilson Center now, says not only should Biden go, but Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, uh, whose country has been invaded by Russia, absolutely needs to go. He was invited a while back, was expected to attend in November. Let's go to the panel, our Bloomberg Politics contributors, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shianzano. Rick, what do you make of that assessment by Jeffrey that uh, Zelensky's got to go? This is a, I don't know if that's necessarily a face-off, but he can't back down with Putin uh, planning to attend as well. Yeah, I thought uh, I thought Ambassador Jeffrey was spot on. I thought his analysis of the situation around the G20 meeting and the relationship between 
the Western nations and Vladimir Putin was 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 just perfect. Um, look, Zelensky has participated in every major international forum in the last year since the invasion. Uh, he's either beamed he's beamed in up until that point in time. It would be a dramatic moment if he showed up in person. Uh, at the G20 meeting, especially if Vladimir Putin is there. So uh, obviously, number one with him is going to be security and whether or not he can afford to take the time uh, uh, out of uh, being in the Ukraine uh, to make the trip. But uh, you you get the impression we're at a a critical juncture in this fight that's entered a stalemate. And uh, the kind of importance of rallying uh, nations to the the cause of uh, Ukrainian freedom is going to be even more important, uh, so that they don't lose the initiative. So I I, I think it would be very exciting uh, for Zelensky to make an appearance. Frankly, much more so uh, than uh, than having either uh, President or Putin and uh, and Xi. Right. And, and Rick, what what do you make of those security challenges? I, 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 I'm, I'm just thinking of the drama of uh, Putin and Zelensky and Biden uh, all attending. How feasible is it that everybody feels confident in this uh, happening safely? Well, the one complication is Zelensky in Ukraine. I mean, Vladimir Putin's trying to kill Zelensky and his family. They, they've made no bones about that. They have assassin squads. They try to target his location. And he's done a phenomenal job of being able to stay in the public eye, you know, through these video broadcasts, uh, but also to stay out of harm's way. Um, uh, moving him out of, the, out of Ukraine and into uh, Indonesia for this event um, poses its own natural uh, challenges to his security. And I think that has to be paramount to everything. Jeannie, real quick, how feasible is it for the U.S. to try to go around making sure everybody ices out Putin while he's there? It's not feasible for them to do that. They are going to certainly talk with our NATO allies and they're going to try to put up a united front. But I do think the fact that the United States and some NATO allies tried to pressure Indonesia not to invite Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, this is a problem because they didn't succeed. And so it would be incumbent on the administration, knowing that if they're invited, we are still going to attend, to not put that pressure on and then have this turnaround. Indonesia officials basically decided they were going to act as sort of the middlemen here and moderate this, be mediators on this. And so I think the U.S., this was not a good move. I do agree, Zelensky, but my understanding is if he comes, he'll probably be coming electronically. And so, you know, he can make an appearance that way. But the United States to be in a position of saying, don't invite them, and then they show up, not a, not a good sign for the U.S. Speaking of high-profile appearances that we don't necessarily know will happen or how they'll happen, other big piece of news today, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, the uh, key Republican on the January 6th committee, says she's been in touch, or or the committee itself has been in touch with the counsel for former Vice President Mike Pence, and she says that she hopes he will testify. Uh, Here's what she had to say to ABC News about the critical role the former Vice President has played. He played a a critical role on January 6th. If he had succumbed to the pressure that Donald Trump was putting on him, we would have had a much worse constitutional crisis. And I think that he has clearly, as he's expressed, um, concerns about executive privilege. 
which you know I have tremendous respect. I think it's it's you know hugely important constitutional issue in terms of separation of powers. I believe in executive privilege. I think it matters. Um, but I also think that when the country has been through something as grave as this was, uh, everyone who has information has an obligation to step forward. That was on ABC's This Week. To hear the full interview, you can tune in right here on Bloomberg Radio Sunday at 1 p.m. Jeannie, what do you think the likelihood is of this actually happening? You know, I am not convinced that the vice president has changed his mind about appearing. And I did not read his statement in New Hampshire the other day as anything more than sort of a usual Mike Pence. A lot of words, very little change in in what he is going to do. But I would say I know that uh, Liz Cheney has also said that unlike the vice president's um, statement, there is precedent for an appearance like this. On the 9-11 commission, for instance, she indicated after Nixon's pardon, President Ford testified before a subcommittee. So to say it is unprecedented, she at least is claiming is not entirely accurate. So I think that's something to note. Unusual, maybe, but not unprecedented. I uh, am not going to lie. This is my favorite scoop of mine as a reporter in Washington, D.C. I cover the federal budget. I write about trillions of dollars of of money. Uh, I sometimes get to host this show when Joe Matthew isn't in. But my absolute favorite story is about the old Capitol Stones. These are a couple hundred years old, it seems. They're from the original U.S. Capitol building. They were taken out of the east front of the Capitol in the renovations that they did 1958 to 62 and were dumped in a park in Washington, D.C. because what else do you do with a bunch of sandstone and marble? Uh, You don't send it to a, a museum. You put it in a park by an old maintenance facility. They turned into an unsanctioned destination for locals and some tourists because it's a cool thing to go see and let your kids climb over. Uh, but now they are being moved. And it seems that there's been a plan for a few years to to move them uh, and not allow the public to see them. They're going to a warehouse at Fort Meade in Maryland. I've heard from uh, officials from the architect of the Capitol as well as the National Park Service. Let's talk to Jane Campbell, the president of the U.S. Capitol Historical Society and a former mayor of Cleveland. Mayor Campbell, thank you so much for joining us. I'm curious what you make of this plan and what it says about, I guess, our our tendency to take our history and and sometimes uh, honor and revere it and sometimes just dump it in the woods. Well, I appreciate very much being on and, and talking about this issue because for us, we look at it in you know, what's, how did we get here? What's the historical context? The original United States Capitol Dome was constructed in 1824. It was wood and copper. And by the mid-19th century, there had been expansion of the House and Senate chambers and the facilities for them, and the dome was too small in relation to the rest of the Capitol. And at the same time, the dome was rotting because the wood was rotting underneath the copper lining. So the new architect of the Capitol, then Thomas Walter, proposed that we create a cast iron dome, the one we know today, that we see today, um, and Congress appropriated funds for that in 1855 initially. The dome was completed in 1866. Now remember what was going on at that time in this country? So 
think about how important it was to continue to build our temple of democracy in the midst of the Civil War. But the dome as it was completed was too wide for the center of the Capitol, and it's, it overhung the East Front. And over the next 90 years, the imbalanced weight damaged the original 1820 area sandstone facade on the east wing, on the on the east front and sandstone is not that sturdy of a building material remember we've learned a lot about building materials over the years um, and so in what was happening in is that the decorative art was beginning to decay. The columns were, you know, they would freeze, they would get water in them, and then they would uh, not be stable. And so in the 1950s, Congress authorized the architect of the Capitol to expand the east front with a copy of the original facade, but made from a more durable marble and made in a way to balance properly. So at that point, the sandstone from the front uh, became excess material, the, stone, the stairs. And if you look at the columns were moved to the National Arboretum. And you can go to the National Arboretum today and see those original columns. They're displayed. There's a reflecting pool. There are interpretive signs. So you know what you're looking at. You understand that this is a preservation of history. The rest of the stone, uh, the the steps and some of the other uh, stones, were put at Rock Creek Park, and with it, honestly, looks kind of like a pile of rocks. Um, right. And so, remember, in the 1950s, we didn't feel the same way about historic preservation that we do now. The National Historic Preservation Act wasn't passed until 1966. So part of it is remembering the time that the decision was made to put the rocks there. Right. And so what's happened now is that gradually people have begun to know that the rocks were there. But if you go out there, there's not a sign that tells you what it is. Um, and now there's a fence around it. But before there was a fence around it, it was, you know, a pile of rocks. And if you looked very carefully at it, you could see the intricate carving that had been done by the Italian craftsmen who came as stone carvers. But it, there was no memory of it. And I've I've noticed you can see uh, like a code, a, a letter and a number on some of them where it guided where they'd put it. I'm I'm curious, and I've heard from people who have have uh, complained that they don't want these to go away. Why not put these in the arboretum? I, I understand it took a lot of effort from people like Ethel Garrett and uh, the Friends of the National Arboretum to put the columns, the original East Front columns, in the National Arboretum. Why uh, why are these stones then? Uh, sort of dumped unceremoniously in a park, and why why not put them in the arboretum now? Well, let me tell you, the Capitol Historical Society exists to tell the story of the Capitol and the story of the Congress. We don't get to make the decisions, um, and so 
why the decision was made to do it in the way it was done, I can't. I can't comment. I don't know. I, number one, I wasn't there in the fifties when that decision was being made. Um, but we have said that we would like to see the stones preserved um, and displayed hmm. in some kind of a way. We, you know, we're not in a position to say exactly how that's going to be. We did work with uh, the Italian-American Cultural Museum of Washington, D.C., fascinating group of people, um, and they very much wanted to have a piece of those rocks to recognize the Italian-American stonecutters. And we helped them to get connected with the architect of the Capitol, and the architect of the Capitol gave them uh, a piece of the stone with carving, which is on display at the Italian American Museum of Washington D.C. So there, you know, there are ways that we can display this, that these uh, these rocks can be displayed. Right now, what I think, I mean, I don't know what the background of the decision. I learned of the decision in 2020 uh, when we went out to see the rocks with the Italian-American Cultural Museum folks um, as they were trying to look at it to secure the donation. And that was when I first uh, learned about it. And you could see that they they were at risk. as people were crawling over them, as they were, you know, just exposed to the elements. And you could also see that the columns are displayed with majesty. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are not that. And so if, in fact, it makes, it, it makes sense to preserve the rocks with the carvings while trying to figure out how they can be displayed... That makes a lot of sense. Should because the there's a risk to the rocks and a risk to people? Hmm. Should they? Should the Smithsonian be involved? Should they go to the arboretum? If you had your dream, where would these go, and how would they be displayed, if at all? I think they should be displayed in a way that has the same kind of majesty that the columns has. Um, the question of who has the capacity to do that. I don't know the answer to that question. Hmm. And so I I would like to see it done in a way that people can visit with I, interpretation. I'm interested in how these have become uh, sort of these orphan stones. It sounds like maybe the National Park Service doesn't really want them there in Rock Creek Park. Uh, there, There's not a specific plan. And it sounds like it's been, you know, two or three years since they've been planning to move these to a warehouse. Uh, I mean, it, it, why, why no announcement on this? Should there have been an announcement? Should there have been um, maybe a little more transparency? Or it, it almost seems like these were were going to be moved uh, secretly? I don't know what, I mean, we we did have a pandemic and that shut down all kind of things. Uh, so exactly what the thinking was, I can't comment on because I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't involved in the decision. Um, 
One other topic I'm, I'm very interested in the perspective from the Capitol Historical Society uh, looking back on January 6, 2021, as the Congressional Committee uh, continues to investigate everything there. What do you all think needs to be done to understand that part, not only of national history, but of the Capitol's history? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, the Capitol Historical Society has been conducting a series of oral histories uh, where people have been coming and telling us their story. We're not part of any investigation. We're just preserving the stories for, for the future. Some people have asked us to keep their names confidential for a period of time, and so we've accepted doing those on a, you know, anonymous basis for now. Um, And we have really found that people open up and tell their stories, and we're continuing to collect those stories. So if anyone has that, um, it's January6thHistory.org. and when um, when might we read or, or learn from that? Is there, uh, I guess, are, do you, are you giving yourself a deadline to p- put something out for the people to learn of everything you've learned in that January 6th process? Um, we, we haven't given ourselves a deadline because we're looking at this, that we're collecting the stories so that they will be here for history. Um, you know, there are plenty of investigations going on. There, there are plenty of uh, folks who are working to try to make reports about who did what to who. What we're looking at is what were people's actual experience. For example, I talked to one, uh, one person who, who was the father of someone who was in the Capitol. And I had done an interview with her. She was a staff member who was on the floor. And she was a first-generation college student. And this was her father who had, was communicating with her by text during this time. And he said, you know, I felt so guilty because I got her involved in politics. I'd been so proud of her. She'd gone to college. She'd gotten this great job. She was working, she's working on her master's degree. And then I felt like I put her at risk. Jane Campbell, thank you so much, uh, Mayor Campbell, president of the U.S. Capitol Historical Society. A couple really interesting uh, issues. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. 
at Stiefel. It's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's go to the panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shianzano. Guys, I want to talk about not only next Tuesday's primaries, but some of the bigger picture stuff as uh, we try to figure out exactly what the state of play is uh, in the quest for control of the House and Senate. Uh, One update on that from the Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell, somebody who, as much as anybody else in the world, wants Republicans to win in the Senate. Uh, Senator McConnell is kind of tamping down expectations about Republicans regaining control of the Senate. He spoke in Florence, Kentucky, uh, and said there is a greater likelihood that Republicans control the House in the next Congress. Here's what he had to say about uh, Republicans' chances of taking the Senate. Their statewide candidate quality has a lot to do with the outcome. Candidate quality. Uh, I wonder who he's talking about. Rick Davis, what are your thoughts? Who, who are the culprits here? If, if uh, Is Senator McConnell being let down by anybody trying to uh, win some Republican seats in the Senate? Oh, sure. I, I think he was uh, channeling his inner thinking. Uh, and, and he is the kind of person who will speak his mind. And so especially when he's home and talking to his constituents, uh, he lets his hair down. And uh, and he did so in this case. I, look, we just had a, a, a contest in Arizona uh, uh, to nominate a Senate candidate. Uh, good example, uh, a very Trumpian guy, Blake Masters. Not a great candidate, no previous experience, young, hasn't raised that much money outside of what Peter Thiel gave him. And and the reality is you know, looking not competitive at all uh, against, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the Senator Mark Kelly, who is in the John McCain seat that's expiring uh, this November. So, um, you know, that would have been a seat that I think Mitch McConnell would have looked at and said, boy, with the right candidate in a Republican year, we ought to be able to pull that off. And there have been many others, Ohio, Pennsylvania, you know, where we have nominated inexperienced candidates with no name ID uh, uh, who are uh, significantly out of step with the reality of the last election in 2020 and uh, our election deniers and and probably not likely to gain any votes in uh, swing districts uh, with swing constituencies. Spell that out for me a little more, Rick. Uh, Election deniers, uh, to what extent is the uh, focus in Republican primaries in competitive states on relitigating the 2020 presidential race 
putting is that the main issue putting republicans at a disadvantage or less of an advantage than they otherwise would have in control of the senate yeah i think there are a lot of different ways to look at it but when you look at you know seven out of eight of the senate candidates that 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 won nomination in uh in 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 this cycle um you know have pledged to donald trump uh that they believe the election was stolen uh uh, good track record for Donald Trump, uh, probably a bad track record for Republicans in the general election, because when you look at the general election numbers, uh, you just don't have that support. You know, the, the general election doesn't support the idea that people agree that the election was stolen. And frankly, with all the you know activity, uh, inflation and uh, economic woes, uh, COVID still around, all the things that voters are dealing with, litigating the 2020 election is not one of them. And so people like Mitch McConnell, they want to talk about, you know, what's wrong with the Biden administration. That's not what these candidates have been doing for the last year as they won their their nomination. So uh, they're behind the cycle. They're behind the curve. They, they uh, don't have uh, uh, particularly good connections to a broad base of uh, donors. They tend to be underfunded. And I think this is what Mitch McConnell was talking about, is that, you know, these are these are generally weak candidates going into a general election where we're supposed to have a, a good cycle, you know, from the perspective of being a party out of power um, uh, during the first midterm. Well, Rick, you mentioned Blake Masters and uh, nobody knows Arizona politics like you. Jeannie, what other states do you think are on Mitch McConnell's mind as he references candidate strength being an issue? You know, nobody knows math better than Mitch McConnell. And quite frankly, he has been warning that they would lose what is supposed to be, to Rick's point, a, you know, a, a really easy sort of walk in the park for them this year if they didn't have candidates who could win. And the reality is he's in a 50-50 Senate. Republicans have to keep everybody they have and plus one. And yet you want to talk about a challenge for him. He has Wisconsin. And yet what are we seeing? We are seeing a Republican out there who is vulnerable to a newcomer Democrat. And Barnes is, you know, still within the margin of error, but up a little bit. And so now what does Republicans do? They have to spend money in Wisconsin. They don't want to do that. Go over to Ohio. You know, they should be able to get that. It's supposed to be a reliably, fairly reliably red state for them. And yet you've got Tim Ryan, a Democrat, running a pretty good campaign. J.D. Vance may be vulnerable. They've got to spend there. And it looks like they're pulling some money out of Pennsylvania, another state they should retain, because Dr. Oz wants to talk about veggie platters and use French words and, you know, all of these things. And he's just not resonating. And you've got a guy who's been not on the campaign trail up 10 there. So those are seats they should retain and then pick up. And the pickup places, they've got people like Herschel Walker. So you go down this list and it is highly problematic. And Mitch McConnell is 100% right. This should be an easy year for them. It's not going to be. And it is on the feet of candidates who are problematic. And look, at he can't blame this all on Trump. He himself endorsed Herschel Walker. Not only is Herschel Walker new to politics, but he has been, you know, pretty much of a disaster so far on the campaign trail for Republicans. Well, in Pennsylvania, can you blame 
Dr. Oz when you have to spend $20 on crudité. Crudité I can't even say that word. Crudité. (laughs) Uh, A a funny, uh, I think he was trying to go go viral in a different way on that. Uh, Before we continue on some of the key states, uh, because there's even more than that, there's so many interesting and close Senate races, I want to get the macro picture. Uh, Jeannie, what happens if, uh, say, Democrats somehow hold on to the Senate uh, and and we see a, a narrow majority in the House. I, this is it seems like something that is increasingly possible. Maybe the Republicans win the House, but it's not a huge wave. Maybe we still have a 50-50 Senate. If we have really narrow majorities in both chambers, do they just not do anything in Congress for two years? What are the repercussions? Yeah, we are in divided government, and there will be, you know, I talked a lot about deadlock and Democrats narrowly controlled at this point. But if you have a, and I agree with you, it looks likely the Republicans, as Mitch McConnell said the other day, it looks likely they do take the House. If Democrats hold the Senate, it will be divided government, but we're going to couple that with an awful lot of investigations. We're going to have House Republicans heading committees. They are going to be investigating things like security on January 6th. They're going to be investigating the Biden family. They're going to be investigating what has been going on at the border. I mean, they're going to be certainly investigating the FBI yeah to that the irs so that's going to be happening you flick to the senate side democrats will be trying to conduct their business um i think the person with the hardest job in dc at that point won't necessarily be the president but probably kevin mccarthy as speaker trying to hold that very raucous uh you know what he will have a very raucous caucus together and i think we're going to be have a lot of frustrated people watching washington dc in deadlock running into 2024 Raucous caucus, indeed. <laughs> uh, Rick, do they? Do you anticipate that if Republicans take the House, they try to impeach Joe Biden? You know, I don't know if they try to impeach Joe Biden, but they'll certainly investigate him. Uh, you know, we we still haven't seen really the resolution of much of this legal woes of Donald Trump. Um, politics tends to be like physics, opposite and equal reaction. So the fact that during a Democratic administration. <clears throat> He's been under investigation by so much. They'll they'll do the same thing, uh, and 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 so, and they and that'll be their only choice if the Democrats still control uh, the Senate because simply nothing they do legislatively is gonna is gonna be seeing the light of day over in the Senate. So uh, it it may be the only option. Uh, arguably, uh, it would be much better for uh, the investigation uh, uh, to be diminished if you had Republican control of both. Congress is because then they'll actually want to pass a lot of, a lot of legislation, send it to Biden to make him uh, have to veto it. And so uh, there might be more productivity. But look, there have been some really good uh, bipartisan uh, bills passed in the last year and a half. And and, and so um, we wouldn't have thought that was going to happen you know, prior to the start of the Congress. So um, uh, maybe there's hope for some action, but I, I wouldn't put much money on it. I I am curious, as I look through this list of uh, races in the Senate that uh, Democrats are seeming to overperform, if they somehow expand their Senate majority, the Democrats, um, what does that do for Joe Manchin? How much does he breathe a sigh of relief? How much does that take the pressure off of him among his uh, colleagues in the Democratic caucus, Jeannie? 
You know, I think Joe Manchin rather likes how he has been, you know, the most important Joe in D.C., besides <laughs> our own Joe Matthew, of course, um, in D.C. for this last couple of years. But, you know, so I, I'm not sure Joe Manchin is going to welcome, you know, uh, be, being, you know, um, I think he'd prefer it this way. And it was fascinating. It wasn't more than a couple of weeks ago he was asked about the Democrats retaining the Senate, and he wasn't particularly bullish on the idea. So I think he likes to be this sort of independent voice and to have the power that he's had. Um, you know, And it has been a lot of power for the last year, year and a half. He has been very, very influential. I think the most important Joe in D.C., uh, aside from Joe Matthew, who's coming back next week, probably makes sense. Thank you both for your insights. I, I, I wish we had another hour to talk about Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, Wisconsin, etc. But thank you again also to former ambassador uh, to Iraq, Turkey, Albania, James Jeffrey over at the Wilson Center, as well as Jane Campbell, the president of the U.S. Capitol Historical Society, giving us our Friday afternoon history lesson. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This has been a fun one. Joe, Joe Matthews coming back next week. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.